like I've said before, uh, the recording is only English 325, I should say. I started recording, I should say. English 325. October 9th, I only record audio, so all of you who are here with me, you know, you don't have to, your goofy faces won't be uh, up for everybody to see. Goofy, including my own. Um, so a couple of announcements before we get started. Um, everybody get my email about the mid-semester evaluation. Google Forms link. If you've filled that out yet, thank you very much. If you haven't, I'm gonna spam the shit out of our class email until I get enough responses. It's gonna be like your COVID uh, self-check every day email. I'm just gonna spam that every day until we get to a certain amount. So if you haven't yet, for those of you listening in or those of you here, please do. Um, I've got a bunch of responses that have been generally you know, positive. Uh, the things that suck are the things that I can't change, which is where I, where I like to be. Uh, I don't like things to suck that I can change. Um, other email. I sent an email about midterms. Did everybody get that too? Um, so midterm is next Friday. No, excuse me, next Monday. Not, not four days from now, but a week and a half from now. Um, I will release more information, including a brief podcast about the midterm on Monday. So you're going to have a week to prepare. I give all the questions in advance, um, all sorts of stuff. There'll be some kind of sample questions that I'll talk through to give you a sense of how I grade it. All that stuff um, will come through uh, soon. Hi, Christina, how are you? Oh, you haven't connected to audio yet. That's always, sorry, I should, I should be better at that. Okay, any questions about that? Midterm, mid-semester evaluation. Cool. Well, let's get into it then. So two badass ladies to talk about today. Uh, real badass ladies. I'm gonna share my screen. So as you might know, right, but like, you know, we go through the quotes and everything. So what I'll have to do here is kind of share my PowerPoint and we'll go through these things. Can you guys let me know? I'm always not sure, right? I'm always not sure whether you can see me when I have the PowerPoints up. Can you see me too? Yeah. Can you see like a little me up in the top corner? Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Good thing to keep in mind for me so I don't just like do something on tour and you can see me and what I'm doing. It's great. So Abigail Adams, remember the ladies. Just, it's Friday, people. We're just having fun. Abigail Adams, remember the ladies. Judas Sergeant Murray's on the equality of the sexes. Um, two kind of early, um, we might say like proto-feminist um, texts from uh, the revolutionary era. The broader context here, of course, for our purposes in thinking through these, these this week is to think about how, you know, some of the ideas and values that Franklin espouses in the autobiography that he kind of proposes to be universal about the United States are in fact not quite as universal as they seem for people like enslaved Africans or people like Native Americans, right? Akiyano, Wheatley, and Akam. And then maybe not also for um, American women, white, white American women too. So let's kind of get into these and, and talk through what's happening with these two um, texts. Okay, so the first question I ask you guys is, um, Abigail Adams' argument, what is it in favor of voice or representation for women? And then according to Adams, why is such a change needed? Why do we need that, okay? So she says, um, 
And by the way, in the new code of laws, which I suppose it will be necessary for you to make, uh, I love that move. Like, you know what she's talking about here? She's talking about like, oh yeah, and that like whole constitution thing that you're gonna need to write up because like the revolutionary war is happening. Um, just a little subtle thing, you know, John, just in that kind of constitution thing that you're gonna devise. I love uh, John and Abigail's letters. They love each other so deeply. They do. You can't see it so much in this letter, but in John and Abigail Adams' letters, they love each other, each other so deeply that the other founding fathers, this is true, the other founding fathers give John Adams shit because he wants to spend time with his wife instead of going to the Capitol to like conduct the business of the nation. Like he, that's, they're so deeply, madly in love with each other. It's a beautiful thing, but all like Thomas Jefferson just gives them a bunch of shit. Because like he actually likes his uh, his wife. Of course, we know Thomas Jefferson had some 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 untoward things happening as it concerns that. Anyways, and by the way, in the new code of laws, which I suppose it will be necessary for you to make, I desire you would remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of the husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. If particular care and attention is not paid, uh, excuse me, if particular care and, not, and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. So what is Adams arguing here? I open this up, this up to all of you. You're, you're welcome to just unmute yourself and blurt something out. You can do the raise hand function, however you want to do it. What is she arguing here? What is she asking for? Um, she's asking for like representation of women in the like government and laws because she's saying that, uh, or what she says, uh, and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. So she's saying, if you want women to follow what's going on, you have to include us like in the conversation kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Great. This is a really important thing that Abigail Adams is saying. She's arguing for voice or representation, but she's saying, she's saying that women need to have voice or representation in the construction of the laws of the new nation because, right? Because laws shouldn't hold upon people that don't have a voice in creating them. Right. You should only be held um, subject to laws that you have a voice or representation in creating, right? We will, not, we will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. What does that argument remind you of? What does the logic of that argument remind you of? The idea that um, if we are going to be subject to laws, we need to have representation in making and enacting those laws. What does that remind you of from this period? Anything in particular? This is kind of reminding me, I mean, it reminds me of Ben Franklin with him saying, if we're going to follow a religion, we should make sure we're following it correctly. Not sure that's what you're getting at, but that's what it also reminds me of. It's not what I'm getting at, but I like the idea, right? Because it, it interfaces nicely with the founding fathers thing, right? So like Franklin is talking about how um, we want to like treat 
each other well and we have an understanding of kind of laws and ethics and morals that come from like a conception of society as opposed to a conception of a god right but like what abigail adams here is saying is that that conception of society that we have where we have uh, an understanding of what's good and what's bad because we know it's bad for others or good for others should include women okay that argument the idea that if you're going to make a law and subject a population to that law then those people who are subjected to that law should have a voice in creating it that is precisely the argument that undergirds the revolution itself right like no taxation without representation right like that's precisely the idea so what is abigail adams doing here then it's a really savvy rhetorical move can we talk through why she's making this precise claim in this moment um she's kind of using like uh their own logic against them like you can't even argue with what she's saying because that's exactly what the people are already like fighting for yeah like so she's kind of like just using that to like help her out which it's like probably i don't necessarily know if it's probably not super effective because it's i mean i don't know how true like how many women actually got representation in creating the laws but like yeah i figured zero so <laughs> but like what she is it is it is pretty like uh like like uh i was like looking for i'm trying to think thinking of a word like it's almost kind of like like cheeky or like sassy like she's kind of like using that and being like oh yeah like i i'm gonna do what you guys did to argue against you precisely it's very savvy but i like the idea of it being a little cheeky too because like the logic of it is kind of cheeky in the same way that like oh by the way in the constitution i hope that you would remember us right that's a cheeky moment as well so yeah you can see a little bit the kind of cool little relationship that john and abigail have among themselves in this letter but yeah josie as you're saying like abigail adams is turning right back around on john a founding father the logic of the revolution right she is saying that if in fact you are going to argue in order to support your revolution that laws need to be made with the voices of those they are subjected to taken into account, then you must, you simply must also agree that if these laws are going to hold women to particular behaviors or standards or manners, then women should also be part of the discussion about what those laws are, right? So she's using the exact rhetoric of the revolution, right? Really savvy, really smart on the part of Abigail. How could John possibly argue against it, right? How could she possibly, how could he possibly argue against that, that logic? It's really savvy and really um, uh, smart on the part of Abigail to, to use the logic of the revolution and turn it right back around on, on her husband. Everybody understand that, how that's working, right? Um, laws are only good if the people that those laws are um, uh, ruling over have a voice in their creation. And that idea, that kind of logic that underpins that argument is precisely the same logic as the logic that is used to support the Revolutionary War, right? So Abigail is very savvy, very thoughtful about what she's doing here. Okay, so the second question then is, 
according to Adams, why is this type of change needed? This is a little bit of a naughty quote, so we'll kind of work through it. She says that your sex men are naturally tyrannical. Tyrannical means like um, dominating, authoritarian, and powerful. That, like, uh, that your sex are naturally tyrannical is a truth so thoroughly established as to admit of no dispute. But such of you as wish to be happy willingly give up the harsh title of master for the more tender and endearing one of friend. Why then not put it out of the power of the vicious and the lawless to use us with cruelty and indignity with impunity? So why do we need to have women's voice and representation in the creation of laws, according to Adams? What is it about men that make it such that women need to have voice or representation in the creation of laws? I feel like it's because they always lead towards like making decisions that are like more like tyranny kind of thing mm -hmm. and like women would actually like think through it and how it says like more tender and endearing like maybe she's just meaning that like women would think more with their hearts than like with aggression or violence right precisely she says that by their very nature men are dominating and tyrannical right and so of course then like because men are inherently tyrannical we need to include women in the construction of the laws that are going women are going to be subjected to because otherwise what's going to happen is those laws are going to be naturally tyrannical just like the men who created them are right but what she says is that hey you know men are naturally tyrannical inherently domineering and authoritarian right um but she says men can change they can give up the title of master and become friends with their wives instead of masters, right? She's actually suggesting like, hey, John, like this is what you and I have. Like you've given up the harsh title of master. You are tender and endearing. Other men could do that as well. And what she says is that um, we need to make that change, right? We need to make the idea that men can become tender and endearing and not tyrannical. We need to make that change a matter of law, right? Don't just basically um, trust that men will do that of their own accord or of their own volition. Instead, make that change a matter of law. Men are naturally tyrannical, but Abigail says they can change. So why don't we put that change into the law itself? Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, I like the head nods. Thank you. The thumbs up. That's all great. I also have the chat box up if people have questions, but don't want to shout them out. Um, although that's a little bit more difficult with the recording. So, but uh, we'll, we'll work through it. Okay, so um, let's step up, step back a second, go through this, and then and then and then move on. So, what's Abigail's argument? Right, her argument is that um, women uh, are should be allowed voice or representation in the laws that govern them. Um, that um, if you are going to have laws that you are subjected to, you should have a voice in saying them and in creating them. Excuse me. And the important thing about that is that that is precisely the same logic that's being used by the founding fathers to. Uh, basically justify the revolution, right? 
And then the second question, why is that change needed? It's because men are naturally domineering and tyrannical, right? But Abigail says they can change and we need to make that change a matter of law, not just like uh, make it a matter of their own choice. We actually need to make that change a matter of law. Questions about any of that? Okay, let's move on a small little point, but one that's kind of notable in light of Judith Sergeant Murray and what she says too. Um, the second question about Adams, what does Adams ultimately conclude about equality? Is she calling for something radical or is she calling for something more modest? She says, men of sense, like thoughtful, sensible men, men of sense in all ages abhor hate those customs which treat us only as the vassals, that means like the slaves of your sex. Regard us then as beings placed by providence under your protection and an imitation of the supreme being, make use of that power only for our happiness. So what does Adams ultimately conclude about equality here between men and women? I mean, another way to ask this question is, is she actually arguing for equality? What is she arguing for? I feel like she just wants to like have all women be seen with respect instead of just be seeing like to carry children and to like have sex with. Yes, right. So she's definitely arguing against the idea that women are vassals or slaves subservient to men, right? And to be treated in a hostile or oppressive way. But, right, that's the first sentence of this passage. But the second sentence does not suggest that what follows from the first sentence is that men and women should be treated equally. What does she actually say about the status of men and women? What does God do? Yeah, sorry, go ahead. So, uh, that God, um, that women are placed by God to be under men's protection that men are to be above women and protect them? Yes, right? So she doesn't suggest that equality is the answer. She's suggesting that it is divinely ordained by providence, by God, that men protect women, that men are, that, excuse me, that women are subservient to men. But she says, don't abuse that divinely ordained privilege, right? If you are going to be um, more powerful than us, if you are going to be in the position where you need to protect us, only use that power for our, for women's happiness. Don't abuse that power, to go back to what Bree said, right? Don't abuse that power, right? So what is she ultimately saying as it concerns equality? Is there equality for Abigail Adams between men and women? Um. It seems like she's saying no, but like based on what she's already said, I feel like this statement contradicts herself a bit. Um, Cause like when I was reading her letter, like I was very surprised with like how like equal they were. It's appeared that like she was like, like they were kind of talking like as equals. Like she was literally just like, she was clearly knowledgeable about what was happening with everything. Like she was asking questions, talking about the like current political situation. Yeah. Like she was very like, it was, it was like not at all what I really expected. Um, but it's, so it's like strange to me that she's like saying this, 
But it's also, it kind of surprised me at the same time, because when you think of someone being, like, protected, like, that also, I feel like, gives someone a certain amount of power, because technically, like, the president is, like, protected by, like, the Secret Service and stuff like that. So, like, to me, like, when I was reading it, it's, like, like, she kind of says that, like, oh, we're being, like, put under your protection, because, like, but also, it almost is, like, because we need to be like protected because we're like important. Yes, absolutely. And this is, this is precisely the point of her argument is like, you need to treat us well in protecting us because we are crucial, right? So Josie, there's two ways to kind of reconcile these points that you're making, right? Because it does seem like this passage is a little counterintuitive relative to the rest of the letter where she does seem to be arguing more forthrightly for something like gender equality. Right, so there's two ways to think through this and to kind of square that circle. One is that Abigail Adams is just making a savvy rhetorical ploy here, and that she's suggesting that women are subservient to men because of some divinely ordained um, edict, um, basically to kind of pet John, like to make him feel a little bit better about himself, and to suggest that the thing that she's asking for is not quite as radical as it seems. So that's one way. Maybe it's a rhetorical move. The other thing to think about, though, is that this passage is in the language of religion, whereas when Abigail Adams seems to be talking more about equality, like really true equality, it's always in the language of the state. And if we think about like the revolutionary context, if we think about something like the Constitution, or if we think about like even going back to Franklin, some of the things that kind of come up in this kind of revolutionary moment is the separation of those two things, the separation of the church from the state. And so it might be kind of interesting to think about how, from a religious perspective, Abigail Adams is not exactly arguing for something radical about gender equality, but from a kind of political one, from a governmental one, she maybe is. Does that make sense? That's kind of two ways to kind of square that circle, but I like that complication a lot, right? Because it does seem to be kind of strange relative to what she says in the rest of the text. But all the same, even if we only kind of accept it in a religious register, in this passage, she's not really suggesting equality, right? She's suggesting a position of subservience. Um, when, again, when you're being protected by somebody else, you do have a measure of power, absolutely, right? But she's suggesting that women are in a position of subservience because it is divinely ordained that they are. Um, so we might say that that's kind of modest, at least in this portion of the text, that's kind of modest in terms of its um, feminism or in terms of its kind of conception of gender equality. Any other thoughts on, on this short little passage? Cool. Okay, so let's go into um, Judas Sergeant Murray. I love this reading. It's really hard. The language is tough, but it's like super logical. Like this is the type of shit that like, like this is CPN 101 stuff. It's like, okay, I got a claim. I'm going to refute it. Here's my evidence. I got a claim. I'm going to refute it. Here's my evidence. Really cool text. So we're going to go through Judith Sergeant Murray. What does she conclude about education? What does she conclude about domestic affairs? What does she conclude about religion? We have about 25 minutes, so that should be a good amount of time. Okay, so what does Judith Sergeant Murray conclude about education as it concerns the equality of the sexes? I just want to get, go through these passages and kind of like 
better understand what exactly she's saying. She says, are we deficient in reason? We can only reason from what we know. And if, and if an opportunity of acquiring knowledge hath been denied to us, the inferiority of our sex cannot fairly be deduced from thence. What is she saying there? What's her argument about men and women and disparities in education? When she says reason, she means something like intelligence. So she's asking the kind of rhetorical question, are women deficient in intelligence? And then she kind of answers it. What's her answer there? I feel like her answer is that being that they've been denied education, like people see them to be deficient in like having knowledge and stuff like that. But like, it's not that they can't have that knowledge. It's just that they haven't been given the chance to have it. Yeah, right. So yes, exactly. So what Judith Sergeant Murray is saying is that what seems to be an innate or inherent intellectual deficiency on the part of women is in fact because, as Brie tells us, of disparities in educational opportunities. What seems to be innate or inherent as an intellectual inferiority of, of, of women is because of a lack of, of educational opportunities, right? Men are provided more chances. So let's kind of continue with that idea as we go through the rest of these passages. She says, from what doth the superiority in the determining faculty of the soul proceed? May we not trace its source in the difference of education and continued advantages? Will it be said that the judgment of a male of two years old is more sage than that of a females of the same age? So let's just continue to talk through that idea. How is she reinforcing in this passage what we've just mentioned, right? What is she suggesting about a two-year-old young girl and a two-year-old young boy? that a two-year-old boy um, is more important. I don't know what more sage means. Sage just means smarter, it means wiser. But she's oh, okay. at, so, yeah, go ahead, Sam. Oh, I was just gonna say, so in that terms, and she's saying, obviously a male two years old is more, is smarter than a female of the same age, even though they're both kids. They're not really, they learn about the same at that age. Yeah, what she is saying is, like, it's hard to understand exactly what she's arguing because she puts all of her arguments in the form of rhetorical questions, right? So what she is saying is, you have to read it with a certain tone. You have to say, like, will it be said that the judgment of a male of two years old is more sage, right? She's kind of um, criticizing that idea, right? She's criticizing the idea that someone could legitimately justify the idea that a young boy is smarter than a young girl. The implication is that no, of course, a two-year-old boy and a two-year-old girl are just as intelligent, right? In my experience as a parent, a girl is more intelligent, vastly, vastly more intelligent in so many ways. Um, my stupid young boys. Um, <laughs> So what is she saying then? If it is in fact the case that a young boy and a young girl 
have no innate intellectual difference, where does the difference come from? What is she saying about where the difference comes from? Again, this is just reinforcing the point from the first passage. The difference just comes from the fact that he's a male and like automatically he's seen to be more advanced than a girl. Okay, so he's, there's perception, cultural and social perceptions about men, right? What else? That is absolutely true. What else makes that difference apparent? If it's not apparent when they're two. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I was just saying education and continued advantages. Yeah, it's because society provides that two-year-old boy as that two-year-old boy grows up with more opportunities to succeed and more opportunities to educate themselves, right? This is not so different, by the way. I mean, like, it's not quite as radical as it was in the 1790s, but it's not so different from, like, the 21st century. We're still talking about disparities in education, right? Not just along the, gen the axes of gender or sex, but also along the axes of something like race or ethnicity. Right? These are still really important conversations that are being had now, right? The idea that like a young black boy and a young white boy, there's obviously no innate intellectual difference between those two boys. But why is it the case that like um, SAT scores are so radically distinct based on race? It has nothing to do with innate intellectual differences. It has everything to do with educational opportunities and money. Right? So these ideas that Judith Sergeant Murray is bringing us to in the 1790s still hold, um, not just for gender or sex, but also for other kind of identity categories. Okay, so it's um, not, yeah, go ahead, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I said that like really stood out to me too, and it made me think about uh, what we read last time, uh, the Cherokee women and how they spoke to Ben Franklin, like on behalf of, um, like for like their desire for peace. And I was thinking like, even today, if there was like a group of Cherokee women who like stood before like people in power, like they would be viewed differently, like they would have probably at the time too. Like that definitely, that definitely didn't change like so drastically that like they're getting, like it was like the inequality is still there, just like kind of in like a different like way. It's in a, it's in a subtler way. It's in a way that we like in the 21st century because we think of ourselves as progressive and enlightened. We, we like to think of ourselves as not actually adhering to these ideas or these beliefs, right? So it's presented to us in a subtler way, but it's still here with us. Absolutely. This perception, right, that like, um, yeah, this, this disparity in educational opportunity and in advantages is still definitely here with us. Um, okay, so let's finish up this idea about education and then, and then move on. So she says, the one, the boy, is taught to aspire and the other is early confined and limited. As their years increase, the sister must be wholly domesticated, stayed inside the home, while the brother is led by the hand through all the flowery paths of science. Grant that their minds are by nature equal, yet who shall wonder at the apparent superiority of the boy? Right, so what is she saying? This kind of goes back to Bree's point, like it's not just disparities in educational opportunities, it's also social conditioning, right? We teach young boys to aspire, to go out into the world, right? We teach young boys to like, in the 21st century context, we teach young boys to be scientists and engineers, right? Like we, we herd young boys into STEM fields, 
right? That, that kind of idea. That was still in play in the 1790s too, right? We teach young boys to want to go out into the world. We only teach young girls to stay within the home. So of course there's gonna be differences in their abilities when they're grown, right? Because we've societally conditioned young boys to value education and to have those opportunities, whereas we've societally conditioned young women to uh, not take advantage of them, okay? Does that make sense? All right, just in the, in the kind of service of time, I wanna move on because we have um, two more kind of slides to, to think through. Okay, so we just talked about education. There's no innate difference between intellectual capacity between men and women. It's all about the educational advantages that men are given that women are denied. So let's talk about the home, domestic affairs. She says, um, will it be urged that those acquirements would supersede our domestic duties? She's saying, why don't we teach women? That's what she means by those acquirements. Why don't we teach women? Like, why don't they go to school? Why don't we kind of foster their intelligence? Will it be urged that those acquirements would supersede our domestic duties? I answer that every requisite in female economy is easily attained. Anybody uh, take home economics when they were in high school? Yeah. When, when Judith Sergeant Murray says female economy, that's what she means. She means like cooking, cleaning, tending to the house. That's what she means by female economy. So she's saying that every requisite, all of the things that you need to do to take care of the home are easily attained. And with truth, I can add that once attained, they require no further mental attention. So what is she saying about baking, cleaning, cooking, taking care of children? What is she saying about home ec? She's saying that it's actually not that difficult to do or to learn and that I guess she's basically pointing out that like men are capable of doing it too. Yeah, I mean, that's a second point that she kind of comes around to, but before we even get there, right, what she's trying to suggest to us in that first passage is like, like doing the laundry, cooking, cleaning, that shit is easy. And by the way, it's also trivial. It requires no further mental attention, right? And so the idea that like, oh, no, 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 we can't teach you, we can't kind of, um, uh, cultivate your intellect because you have to do all these things in the home. That's a, what, according to Judith Sergeant Murray, that's a bullshit excuse, right? Because like the stuff in the home is not that hard and it doesn't take a lot of mental labor to do it. Okay. So let's kind of continue with that idea in this next passage too. Again, these passages are meant to reinforce one another. And that's by the way, just what this reading does. It kind of like, she just, over the course of the reading with all of this evidence and with all of these rhetorical questions and with all of the logic that she's using, she just backs up a fucking truck onto the man. Like, it's just like, you, you have no argument against it because she just overwhelms you with her rhetoric and with her questions and her logic. So she says, and should it still be urged that the studies thus insisted upon would interfere with our more peculiar department, I must further reply that early hours and close application will do wonders. And to her who is from the first dawn of reason taught to fill up time rationally, both the requisites will be easy. So she's trying here to argue that women can take care of the home and be educated. What's her rationale? What's her justification for that argument? She, she wants us to believe that women 
can take care of the home, do all of the things that they have to do, and cultivate their intellect? Why can they do both, according to this passage? They get up at early hours. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind of a shitty thing to think of. It's like, yeah, we can wake up earlier, right? We can, like, focus our attentions, right? We can do both of these things. That's one of the reasons. What's the second one? What does she mean by, and to her who is from the first dawn of reason taught to fill up time rationally, both the requisites will be easy. What is she saying there? Um, maybe that women are not meant to slack off so that they can fill that extra time they have with doing something as rational as learning. Yeah, Sam, precisely just a, a slight tweak on that. Basically what she is saying is like, if you men had taught us women how to fill up our time rationally, then we would have a bunch of time to teach ourselves and to be educated. But you men have not taught us how to do that. Instead, you men have basically coddled us and made it easy for us to, to use Sam's 21st century term, slack off, right? But if, as young women, we were taught to focus, right, to be attentive, to fill up our days with rational endeavors, then learning and doing the house shit would be easy. We could do it all. We could have it all. Lean in. Right? Like, we can have it all. But we can't because you haven't taught us how to do it. That's basically what she's saying. That idea is reinforced again in the third passage. So she says, And it may also be repeated that many of those hours, which are at present swallowed up in fashion and scandal, might be redeemed were we habituated to useful reflections. Does anybody read, like, People Magazine or Us Weekly or go on YouTube and, like, uh, talk, see like what the latest, what's the latest hot goss between the TikTokers, Chase and Charlie or whatever, <laughs> right? Yeah. Anybody? Any of you guys? No. Okay. Well, it's a small, it's a small group, but I would suggest to you that like there are many, many, many people who do that, and that's exactly what Judith Sergeant Murray is talking about here. Like when she says fashion and scandal, she means like um, right now women in the 1790s, they spend a lot of their time like doing the equivalent of reading Us Weekly or like um, scrolling Instagram for the latest beef between, I don't know, I don't know any other, I don't know any other names of these people, but like, but you know what I'm saying, right? So what is she saying that women could do instead? Instead of doing those things, what could women do? They could be spending like that spare time educating themselves, learning different like tasks and stuff like that. And the idea here is that like they could be doing that, but the men who were in charge of their education did not provide them with the means to do that. Right. This is how this slide connects to the last one. Right. Like men did not provide women with the means to do that. So they don't know how. Right. They don't know how. That's the idea. Okay, so just a step back to kind of rehearse this one, and then we'll move on to religion, which is the last. She's saying that basically, like, taking care of the house, domestic affairs, they're trivial. They don't require any intellectual effort. 
So there's actually a lot of time for women to cultivate their intelligence without becoming irresponsible wives. There's plenty of time to be a responsible wife of the 18th century and still cultivate your intelligence, right? She's suggesting that women can do both, but they have not been provided with the opportunities or the means to do so, right? Taking care of the baby, doing the laundry, cooking, cleaning, all that stuff, it takes some time, but there's time left over and like it is menial drudgery, like it's not really thoughtful work. So we could also fill up our time with more intellectual endeavors. Now, by the way, from a 21st century perspective, like I think Judith Sergeant Murray, generally speaking, is quite radical and, and quite refreshing in her. Like she seems quite, um, I don't know, she seems quite modern, right? But in this particular respect, I would actually disagree with her because it's really fucking hard to take care of kids. <laughs> and do the laundry and take care of a house. Maybe it was easier in the 18th century, but somehow I doubt it. So like, I actually disagree with Judith and Sergeant Murray, and this is not like, this is just my personal opinion, but like, I actually think a lot of these things are very hard. And not only are they very hard, they actually take a lot of intellectual effort as well. Like try to decipher the logic of a four-year-old. Like that's harder than reading like War and Peace. Like that's, that's hard. That's hard shit. That's hard shit. That takes intellectual effort. So that's my, that's my beef with Judith Sergeant Murray here. I think she doesn't give enough credence to uh, female economy, but, but maybe in the 18th century, that, that's how it was working. Does that make sense? All right. Um, one more. What does she conclude about religion? This is a really kind of notable and important point that I want to work us through in the last like eight minutes or whatever that we have. Okay, she's talking about the story of Adam and Eve. Okay, she says, well, but the woman was first in the transgression. She's talking about Eve taking the apple. Everybody know that story, Eve and Adam? Yeah, yeah, okay. She says, strange how blind self-love egotism renders you men. Were you not wholly absorbed in a partial admiration of your own abilities, you would long since have acknowledged the force of what I am now going to urge. So she's saying, okay, the story that we have, the traditional story of Adam and Eve suggests that Eve was the first one to sin, right? And in this moment, Judas Sergeant Murray says, Man, you men, you're so fucking full of yourselves, right? Self-love. You're so full of yourselves that you're blind to the actual interpretation of this story. And then she goes on to reinterpret the story of Adam and Eve, okay? So how does she reinterpret it? She says, it doth not appear that Eve was governed by anyone's sensual appetite. Sensual here means like um, physical, sexual, that kind of stuff was governed by anyone's sensual appetite, but merely by a desire for adorning her mind. A laudable, laudable means a praiseworthy ambition, fired her soul and a thirst for knowledge impelled the predilection so fatal in its consequences. So according to Judith Sergeant Murray, why does Eve take the apple? What is it not and what is it about? Well, she was very curious, so she decided to see what would come of her curiosity. 
Right. She wants to adorn her mind. She wants to eat from the tree of knowledge because she wants to adorn her mind. She's not like, oh, that's a pretty apple up there. I bet it tastes good. It's not a sensual appetite. Right. So when Eve takes the apple, it's because she wants to learn. Okay. According to Judith Sergeant Murray. Okay. Now, she says, after establishing that, that Eve takes the apple because she wants to learn, not because of some sensual appetite. After establishing that, she says about Adam, blush, ye vaunters of fortitude, ye boasters of resolution. Basically, she's saying, like, blush, you stupid men, ye haughty lords of creation. Blush when ye remember that he, Adam, was influenced by no other motive than a bare pusillanimous attachment to a woman. Pusillanimous means, like, Cowardly, basically. Um, so why does Adam take the apple? According to Judas Sergeant Murray? What does she mean by a bare pusillanimous, pusillanimous attachment to a woman? Adam doesn't take the apple because he wants knowledge, because he wants to learn. Adam takes the apple because he's like, Oh, Eve, I love you. You're sexy. Let's hang out more. Can we be together? Yeah, you're great. That's why Adam takes the apple, right? So Adam is not taking the apple because he wants to learn. This is Judas Sergeant Murray's interpretation. Adam is not taking the apple because he wants knowledge, right? Because he wants to learn. Adam is taking the apple because he's like, Yeah, Eve, I'll do whatever you say. Okay. Yeah, okay, I like you. Sure, right? He's a coward. He's a, he's a silly, stupid man. That's why he takes the apple, okay? And then she wraps it all up at the end here. She says, thus, it should seem that all the arts of the grand deceiver, Satan, the serpent, were requisite to mislead our general mother, Eve, while the father of mankind, Adam, forfeited his own and relinquish the happiness of posterity merely in compliance with the blandishments of a female. What is she saying here? What's she saying about Eve, Adam, and the devil? We gotta cut through the difficult language here to get to the heart of the matter. It's difficult language, I get that. What is, she, what, is, what is she saying about how hard Satan has to work to make Eve take the apple? I think he's, she's saying like the devil had to tempt Eve, but like didn't really have to tempt Adam at all. He did it himself. Yes, she's saying that the devil had to pull out every play in the playbook. He had to turn himself into a talking snake. He had, he had to do everything to get Eve to pick that apple, right? What did he have to do to get Adam to pick the apple? Uh, just like Eve had to show up like, and say, hey, do you want a bite? And he was like, yeah, please, okay, Eve, I'll do anything you say, right? The idea here is that Adam is just a dullard who blindly follows Eve without questioning her. So like, the devil has to bar barely do nothing to get Adam 
uh, to sin and to cast out the entire human race into a life of suffering, right? Whereas he has to try really, really hard to tempt Eve. So yeah, Christina, that's exactly right, right? So what she's suggesting here, what she's doing is she's entirely reinterpreting the biblical story of Adam and Eve so that Eve is redeemed. Her sin is a desire for knowledge. Adam is just like taking the apple because he's starry-eyed, I don't know. Eve's hair looked nice that day. I don't know, whatever it is. But that's why he takes the apple. Okay, I know it's 1.30. Any questions about that? Cool. Thank you all. I'll stick around uh, for a couple of minutes if anybody has um, questions. But uh, have a good weekend. Have a good weekend. Eat some apples. I just wanted to ask, 